All right, so this morning we are going to be in John uh, chapter 14 um, and the, uh, the latter verses of chapter 13 and the pickup to that. And you'll remember that uh, where Dad left off was uh, uh, what in some of the synoptic gospels is the upper room. Uh, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Uh, he has um, been uh, sitting around the, the table uh, with his disciples. And then, of course, um, we hear about the betrayal. Uh, Judas excuses himself and uh, goes on that uh, task. And then in verse 31, it says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Uh, little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So in these verses starts what is often called the farewell discourse. This is an extended goodbye uh, by Jesus to his disciples. And this form of a message was was well known to the people. Um, Moses, uh, when he completed his uh, ministry, uh, he, you know, in Deuteronomy, he called the people together and he said, I'm 120 years old, I'm not going to be able to go forward with you. Uh, and then he reiterates uh, all the things that he thinks that are important for them to know. He charges them to continue in the faith. He reiterates many of the commands. He tells them, uh, you know, teach these to your children and them to their children, and, th and then introduces Joshua as the person that is going to carry forward. So this type of farewell discourse uh, is seen. Uh, Joshua does much the same thing uh, at the end of his days, and this is a, a transfer, so to speak. Um, it's a, it's going to be a new situation for them, and, um, and he, this is his official farewell to the disciples. So this concept of a farewell discourse starts in verse 31 there, and it goes all the way through, uh, depending on which commentator you, you uh, read, um, it's, a, it's a continuous, mostly voice of Jesus. Uh, if you have a red letter Bible, the red letters go all the way through the end of chapter 17, which is what's called, chapter 17 is called a high priestly prayer. But, um, uh, but at least through the end of chapter 16, um, he's either still in that upper room or is, is in that upper room and, and, um, uh, and then perhaps on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane eventually. Uh, but anyway, um, this is his extended farewell and his, his parting, parting comments to them. Um, the other big idea, uh, before we get into the verse-by-verse -verse part, is this concept of glorification. Uh, that verse I read in verse 31 
Gosh, how many times? One, two, three, four, five times in just a, a couple verses there is it talking about uh, the glorification um, of the Son of Man or of God, um, God in the Son of Man and uh, all of that. And this is a theme that John speaks on several times throughout the gospel. And sometimes uh, it speaks of uh, God being glorified in the work that Jesus was doing at the time. Um, there's a couple of examples. Uh, let me turn to one briefly. In John 8, um, verse 54, um, there's this discourse with the Jews, and he's, they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Um, it goes on. So there was talk of his glory uh, sprinkled throughout this, but in this particular section, um, you have kind of another angle. Um, and that is um, some future state of glorification. And that's going to be uh, via the cross. And so the concept is there is glorification that's coming through the cross, but God being glorified has already started throughout uh, the time of Jesus' ministry there. So um, another big theme um, is this glorification theme that you'll see. Uh, and then, of course, the other theme um, where Jesus is saying goodbye. And so let's uh, launch on in and just pick up a couple things um, from um, uh, beginning with the, uh, the thoughts of uh, Peter. And in verse 36, it says, Now Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And this is an example in verse 36 of chapter 13. Uh, we have Peter answering a question, or asking a question rather. And then in verse 8, we have a question from Philip. Um, prior to that, in verse 5, we have a question from Thomas. Uh, later on down, we get a question from the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas who was a disciple. Um, and this is an organizational tool that John is using um, to present this information. Remember in, um, say in John chapter 3, we had the visit of Nicodemus, right? And uh, I, I told you that, or at least speculated, I think reasonably so, that Nicodemus didn't just come to Jesus by night and have a five-minute conversation, which is about how long or even less that it takes uh, to read the verses there about what happened between Nicodemus and Jesus. You would expect, especially back in that day when everything kind of took longer, preparation of food, present, presenting the food, you know, all the hospitality conversation, and what would happen between two rabbis, you can imagine probably a dinner conversation of four, five, six hours perhaps um, of, of dialogue, but it all got summarized uh, into just a handful of verses in, in John 3. Well, in John 14, you have, again, this entire conversation that began with 
uh, Jesus washing the feet and the Passover meal and all of that um, till late into the night, no doubt, um, because that's kind of the transition that we'll see. So many hours are, are distilled um, as John is presenting this. And so he's using this uh, little uh, device where a pertinent question is introduced by someone and then Jesus answers it. And it's a nice organizational tool for how, um, for how the, the information gets presented. So in, in verse 36, Simon Peter's question is, Lord, where are you going? It says, Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Now, we rightly so key in on this concept of um, Jesus um, predicting that Peter is going to deny him. But already Peter has picked up on the fact because Jesus has been dropping subtle and sometimes not so subtle hints that he is going, his exit from life is going to be through crucifixion, right? We've talked about even in chapter 3 and then echoes afterwards that this idea of the Son of Man being lifted up, that that lifted up was uh, crucifixion. And so they know that or at least they've gotten the concept that his exit from this life is not going to be a peaceful uh, exit. And I think they, it's probably sunken in to them that this is not going to be a kingly, political, take the world over Messiah um, like they might would have expected before they met Jesus. Um, so they know that, that this, this is going to involve some sacrifice, perhaps even uh, martyrdom, and, and so, so don't miss what Peter says when he says, uh, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I mean, he knows, um, his heart may not be fully there, but he knows in his head that this commitment uh, may cost him. And tradition says that that, that is exactly what happened with Peter. But, um, so we have this introductory comment from Peter, Lord, where are you going? And then Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me. So they, you know, there's this question about um, Jesus is going somewhere that they can't go. So this makes the point, we are going to be separated from our rabbi, from the person that has led us every step of the way over the last three or so years. Now, chapter thir- uh, 14, uh, Jesus continues, let not your hearts be troubled. So this is a continuation of this conversation with Peter, um, and and Jesus has has made it clear, I am going away. You can't be with me. And sensing their anxiety, their disappointment, uh, grieving over this loss that is destined to happen. Of course, he's facing much more than they are. Um, Ideally, they would have been comforting Jesus, but that's not what happens, of course. Um, He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this concept of let not your hearts be troubled, um, does that mean it is a sin to have your heart troubled? Of course not. Uh, Jesus himself, uh, we hear... um, was troubled in his heart about things. Um, This is a state um, that we're often in. Uh, Somebody told me one time, uh, Art, you're never more than three weeks from a crisis. 
which is incredibly discouraging sometimes, uh, but, um, but probably truer than I would like to admit sometimes. Uh, there's always something, right? There's always something that can um, raise our worry level. It's always something we can we can feel unsettled about their situations and relationships and you know events both big and small that we can be troubled about but this was a big one and and jesus said let not your hearts be troubled and then as is often the case um, he gives the not only the explanation for why they don't have to be troubled but it gives them the instruction um, through which they can not be troubled and that is this phrasing believe in god believe also in me many commentators if you if you work through any of this in a in a, a commentary will highlight the fact that these verbs believe uh, in god and believe also in me uh, in the greek can be taken a couple different ways um, it, it could be um, saying a statement of fact you believe in God, you also believe in me. But that doesn't really fit the context exactly. Uh, so some people, um, the, the other way it can be properly interpreted is, is as a command. Um, believe in me. Uh, so some people mix these and say the first one says believe in God. In other words, you believe in God, therefore you should also believe in me. But uh, the, the weight of uh, the commentaries um, settle on both statements being a command. Believe in God as a command. Believe also in me. And the translation apparently that gets it probably closest is the 84 revision of the NIV where they use the word trust. Trust in God, trust also in me. And the way we use the word trust um, kind of carries that little bit of a con connotation that this is an instruction I'm giving you, right? Um, so trust in God or believe in God, believe also in me. Um, and that is going to be the heart of the instruction of why they can afford not to be troubled. Then verse 2, and these are, you know, just famous verses, I know familiar to all of us. It says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Uh, now, we don't know, um, we don't know what conversations they had had kind of offline, so to speak. Um, where he may have told them in the past, you know, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to have a place for you. Um, but here we have it explicitly in Scripture. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So several things here. So first of all, we have uh, a little disappointment here. So when um, Scripture was first translated from, um, in this case, the Greek um, to Latin, the Latin Vulgate, um, the, the word uh, for uh, translated rooms um, uh, is like mano, is like the Greek, and, and 
the Latin translators substituted the word um, that gets transliterated as mansions. So when the King James translated their version from Latin to English, um, it got translated as mansions. Now the Latin version of mansions has the context of a, like a stopover place, which again, that's just the Latin. The Greek doesn't, this isn't just a temporary, we're gonna work ourselves up to better and better places thing. No, that's not in scripture. But, but the point is this little, it's like the, the translator's version of the telephone game where one person tells it, the next person tells it, and you, you start to drift a little bit. So there's no Greek um, support that we all get a mansion, right? <laughs> Much to the chagrin of many of our great uh, gospel hymns or gospel songs, you know, having a mansion over the hilltop and um, uh, a mansion built for me in glory, all those sorts of things. But it does say, um, it says, in my father's house. So everybody is pretty convinced this is talking about heaven and that there are many rooms. And the key to understanding this word rooms is if you skip ahead to verse 23, it says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That home word is the same word about for rooms. It means a dwelling place. So when it says we're going to dwell with you in verse 23, verse 2 is referring to dwelling places. So in heaven, we will have dwelling places where we can dwell, abide with God, um, and, and there's going to be plenty of room, right? So I don't know what that means. I don't know how fancy it's going to be, but we will get to dwell with God, and um, there's pretty good evidence in Scripture it's going to be reasonably swanky. Um, at least the streets are. Just knowing that it's in heaven and, and how obviously glorious that's going to be that we can't even perceive it. Whatever we live in is going to be a mansion compared to what anybody lives in down here. Exactly. And it's all, it's all relative to your point. Uh, anything in heaven is probably better than uh, Biltmore down here. Um, so, uh, so yes, I, I totally, I totally agree. But, uh, in any event, um, we have, uh, we have a place. Uh, it says in my father's house are many rooms there are many places to dwell there. And, um, then he goes on to say, say, I go to prepare a place for you. So the, the way to understand this is it's not like he's going to create these rooms, they're already there, but he's going to prepare them for us. Well, how does that happen? Well, the way that we can access those rooms is only through his substitutionary atonement for us, right? His, his making a way for us is um, when we transition from death to life, we can only do that because he's paved the way for us. So this preparing a way for us is, um, is this, this transition that we get through salvation. And he goes on to verse 3 and says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So some people have said, well, that verse 3 
and these are the, this is kind of a, an interesting way to look at this. It's not necessarily wrong. Um, this concept of if I go uh, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Again, keeping in mind the verses that are going to come later, um, like 20, 21, 22, 23, that talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. They say, well, since Jesus is using that same word for abide with you and live with you, the same terminology that he's using here, this, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. This I will come again, they say, well, that means the Holy Spirit. But, and, you know, you can kind of make that fit. And some people say, well, maybe it, it's even one of these dual meaning situations. But, but again, it seems to be referring to probably the second coming of Christ, right? If I go, this separation uh, that's really going to happen and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am going you may be also. So it seems what doesn't happen when the Holy Spirit comes, you don't get moved somewhere, you know, right? Uh, unless you're Philip who got relocated but but generally when the Holy Spirit comes we're still here on earth right uh, we're still where we were so this concept of of going and coming and us also going to this other new place it just really sounds like the second coming right that's I think we can kind of uh, agree on that and this and verse um, 4 it says and you know the way to where I am going so this is, again, as John's telling the story, he's using um, uh, words to connect the dots as he carries us through these important teachings that Jesus is leaving his disciples with. So now he's introduced this term, uh, and you know the way to where I'm going. Well, Thomas introduces the next, next section, the next bullet point, you might say. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So he's brought forward this concept. Jesus has says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is like, well, I don't even know where we're going, so how can I know the way that we're going? Right? And, you know, I, you, have to, you have to respect the logic there of Thomas. Um, he's just wanting it a little more plain. At least he had the guts to ask it. Uh, I'm sure everybody else had the same question. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then this, one of the most famous verses in John and perhaps even all of Christian teaching, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, as we've seen before, where John talks about um, that, where Jesus presents, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, and so forth. I am the bread of life. Remember, we've looked at all those various I am statements. Well, here he brings forth another one, another I am, which probably would have piqued the disciples' attention. They're like, oh yeah, this is God talking. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And again, for reasons that are beyond me, 
apparently the concept is even though the way, the truth, and the life are listed kind of in order, because of Thomas' question uh, and because of Jesus' statement talking about the way, um, this truth and the life seem to be kind of supporting the main notion of the verse, which is that he is the way. So when he says, and you know the way to where I'm going, and Jesus says, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the emphasis there is on the way. And it says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, just a couple of kind of parenthetical remarks. Um, and again, most of you guys know this, but uh, fairly often nowadays, um, you'll encounter um, this concept of religious tolerance, right? The concept there being that um, uh, everyone, perhaps in our constitution, um, has a right to practice their religion without government intervention, right? Um, and that's why we can meet here, and in other countries we couldn't. Um, that freedom of religion, which we thoroughly enjoy, gets um, it gets um, uh, repackaged, you might say, in terms of what we would call religious tolerance. So this is where uh, a person is expected to treat all religions equally since everyone has the same right to practice their religion, right? And this is where you'll um, often run into this where um, uh, when faith and government intersect, right? So this is why the witch down in Great Falls wants to be able to lead prayer in the county mission, uh, county meeting, just like you know the other pastors do. Well, the, when church and state start to interact, it gets messy. Um, this is why I really don't. I mean, this might be upsetting to some, but I really don't think it's a big deal that we need to, you know, bring back prayer in schools. Well, that's fine here in South Carolina when statistically the odds are it would be Christian prayer to, you know, Jehovah God, but I wouldn't re be real thrilled if I had to send my school to some other part of the country that perhaps was in Utah and, and they were going to be praying to uh, somebody that wasn't the God of the Bible. So, you know, the way I look at it, when Christians get upset about that, it's because we're wanting the government to do our work, right? Um, and that's not the government's role, right? That's, if we want to convince people to be Christians and we need to do our work, we shouldn't expect schools to do it or county meetings to do it or anything like that. Um, but this concept of all religions 
are equal or all religions lead to God. You've probably heard that. There's a, a good word called ecumenical, which in the precise way of using it should mean all Christian faiths should be able to find some common ground in Christ um, so that there shouldn't be a whole lot of difference between the South Carolina church or the California church or the South Korean church or the Australian church. The true church of God should be pretty consistent because we're all supposedly following the same Bible, right? So that's that's true ecumenical thought. Now, I'm probably not going to have a ton in common with some of the finer points of theology from, you know, Presbyterian Church USA, the liberal brand, but I could probably dust off some of their statements of faith that would, um, you know, acknowledge that, you know, there's three persons, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, and that they believe you don't get to heaven except through Christ. I mean, you know, there would be some commonality there. But other than Jesus being a part of the conversation, no one else gets to heaven. No one else gets to heaven because Jesus said, I am the way. Now, this is a hard pill for anyone else to swallow, right? Because who wants to who wants to admit that they're following a religion that is pointless? That is just a distraction from the real thing. Nobody wants to be told that their belief is wrong. Um, Pastor uh, N.T. Wright makes the point that if Christians are behaving like Christians, in other words, if they're acting to the world like Jesus did to the disciples, right? If they're serving, if they're foot washing, if they're loving, then the world is going to have an easier time swallowing the concept that this is the way. Because very few other faiths have service as a key component of their teaching, right? I mean, Islam, one of the key components is domination and power and all that sort of stuff. So um, so even, it's, even though it should be done lovingly and with a servant heart, presenting the gospel means that we also present the fact that Jesus is the only way. And the hope is that the individual heart of the person that's saying that would be um, so winsome to the person that you're talking to that they may not like your message, but, but they may be willing to at least consider it because it came from a good, a good heart, so to speak. The strident person saying, you are all going to hell. While that may be factually accurate, that's not going to be very attractive and winsome to really convert people, right? It's, it's just the opposite. It's very off-putting. All right. Uh, let's see. I guess we're probably going to...
Yeah, we're going to probably finish up with Thomas's question and save Phillips for next week. Uh, so verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known the fa my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So of all these verses that we've talked about today, this is the one that I had kind of the most trouble with. Um, I think it can be understood, if you had known me for who I really am and really understood it, which you really didn't, then you would have known my father also. I think that's kind of how it flows, right? Because even still, you know, he is on the, he is in the last week or less of his time with his disciples and um, and they're still asking some of these really basic questions like who are you you know are you really God you know I mean they've got it but they don't have it as clear as you would think um, but it says if you had known me you would have known my father and then this last part, from now on you do know him and have seen him. And the from now on part probably foreshadows what's going to happen, right? Um, you, I'm guessing it might be a, a fair way to paraphrase and say, um, you're going to see very soon how this is going to work and then you're going to get it. <laughs> Um, I think that that may be a little overly charitable, but I think that's the idea. It says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, this is going to all make sense. And as he talks about in the, the verses that we'll study in the coming weeks, um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, we're going to see that one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do is to help put all the pieces in place for them uh, even to the point of reminding them of particular teachings that he gave them and, and uh, to really um, make it all make sense so that they will be fully equipped to carry out the Great Commission, which he eventually is going to give them. Um, so that's, uh, so that's our, first, our first two questions. So Peter's questions, um, uh, where are you going? And that leads to this concept of Jesus leaving this earth and going to prepare a place. He says, I can't go prepare the place unless I leave you. Right? So we've got Peter's question, and then we've got Thomas's question about what's the way? What's the way? And that's when he says, I am the way. So, you know, you could make this fairly literal. Um, as Jesus' death is going to transition to this new glorified life, um, our, our future state is going to be our death, shedding this body to our glorified life. That is the way. And um, so if you think about this section and the concept of Jesus answering these particular questions, it really, it really makes uh, for a nice organizational tool uh, that John brings out.
Uh, so I think I'll pause there. Uh, any questions, comments? So when we talk about the second coming, we can talk about uh, the ultimate second coming, or we can talk about the um, the preview, the the rapture of the church, um, and uh, and that that could be as well. Uh, oftentimes, I kind of um, uh, kind of morph those two things together. I think I think Jesus knew that uh, that. The disciples, you know, obviously would not be involved with. Um, he would; they would not be alive when he came back. Um, the rapture, of course, those saints would rise first. If if we go by First Thessalonians, so yeah, I think that's. I think, you know, you could. Uh, you could uh, certainly include the rapture as part of that second coming process. Yeah. teacher one time tell me that I'm going to prepare, prepare a place for him he says if God can make a rose and it's all of its glory in one springtime and he's been there 2,000 years preparing a place for us it's going to be it's going to as Phyllis says it's going to be magnificent yeah it should be it should be good well, I would live in an outhouse just to get there. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I don't care what it is. I'm just happy I'm going. There you go. And, you know, it, it, it does put in perspective, you know, the verse, you know, don't lay up for yourself treasures here, right? Um, and that's why, um, you know, our, our momentary afflictions, you know, our, our days down here uh, are going to uh, fade by comparison. Um, just a, a couple comments. Um, you'll know that in Acts, um, the early Christians, um, their label for themselves was that we are following the way, right? And Acts refers to that. Um, and that that's really kind of cool. Unfortunately, that concept has been um, spoiled um, with, in since probably the mid 1950s onward there's a basically a cult called the way international which is definitely a cult they don't believe jesus is god they have a lot of other crazy stuff um but uh, it kind of took off during the jesus movement house church movement back in the 50s 60s and 70s uh but it it's still around but it that's if you hear about the way international that's that's not us that's not our team that's not our team. All right, well, let's close. Father, we thank you um, for just this, this little um, time to spend in your word and to, to see John as he unfolds this great teaching of Jesus. We, we just marvel at the organization of his gospel and the way that he lays it out for us. We we marvel at our Savior who has um, been so deliberate to prepare us for uh, the future state and to prepare our future state for us as well. Father, we pray that we can remember that um, so many things
things in the world are are not the way uh, that there is no other thing that is going to be our savior but the savior jesus christ that uh, he is the way and as we encounter those who need to know you um, let us find the way to be um, truthful and precise about that point but also uh, live lives that um, would be winsome enough um, to make it attractive and we pray that through it all we can take advantage of the Holy Spirit's guidance uh, as we try to be your hands and feet here uh, again we thank you for Jesus in his name I pray amen thanks everybody